Chapter 12. A Broader Canvas. Luang Po in the West, 1977 and 1979. On hearing the teachings, the wise become perfectly purified, like a lake, deep, clear and still. Dhammapada verse 82. Part 1. Inner Land, Outer Land. In 1976, Ajahn Sumedho returned to California in order to visit his parents. On his flight back to Thailand, he stopped over in London for a few days as a guest of the English Sangha Trust, the EST, a body set up to establish a Theravada Sangha in England. For the duration of his visit, Ajahn Sumedho stayed at Hampstead Vihara, a four-storied terrace house belonging to the Trust on the busy Haverstock Hill Road, a mile or so south of Hampstead Heath. The EST had suffered years of frustration and disappointment in their efforts to promote a homegrown Sangha. In Ajahn Sumedho, they saw someone who might finally turn their dreams into reality. Ajahn Sumedho's thoughts had already been turning towards the West, and he was impressed by the dedication of the members of the Trust. Following Ajahn Sumedho's return to Ubon, George Sharp, the president of the EST, flew out to Thailand in order to request Lumpur Cha's permission for Ajahn Sumedho to establish a Wat Bapong branch monastery in England. His arrival was greeted not with a red carpet, but with a rush mat. Lumpur was still away on a journey and had instructed Ajahn Liam, his deputy, to have George sleep on the floor at the back of the Dhamma Hall, eat one meal a day out of an enamel bowl, and join in the life of the monastery. On his return, Longpoor agreed to discuss the proposal, presumably satisfied that George Sharp was sincere and had more than a passing acquaintance with the virtues of humility and patience. Longpoor did not dismiss the notion of a monastery in England out of hand, but said that he would not feel comfortable about granting permission without having seen for himself the suitability of the conditions. On behalf of the English Sangha Trust, George Sharp invited him to accompany Ajahn Sumedho to England the following May, and Luang Po accepted. Luang Po set off on his first ever trip abroad and his first flight on an aeroplane on the 6th of May 1977. Accompanying him and Ajahn Sumedho were an English monk, Ajahn Kemadamo, and Dong, a lay supporter from Ubon. In honour of the special nature of the trip, Luang Po decided, for the first and only time in his life, to record his experiences in a journal. In it, he recounts that as he sat in the plane, he reflected on the Buddha's teaching that going to a strange land, in which you are unfamiliar with the language or the customs, you should not be conceited or attached to your own ways. The theme of adaptation was to recur in the journal throughout the journey. As he looked out on the billowing clouds, he developed an elaborate play on the Thai word for overseas, which means literally the land outside, comparing the land outside-inside and the land inside-outside. It was the first of many puns and passages of wordplay that occur throughout the journal. But the first pages were also to have a more dramatic content. Mid-air, one of the plane's wheels exploded. The air staff made an announcement that we should fasten our seatbelts. People with false teeth had to take them out. People even had to take their glasses and shoes off. We had to see to our personal belongings. 
After the passengers had stowed everything away, everyone was silent. They were probably thinking it was the end of their life. I was thinking that this was the first time I had travelled abroad to do something useful for Buddhism, and was this really all the merit I had? Once I'd thought that, I then made a vow dedicating my life to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and settled my mind in a suitable place. I felt a lucid calm and coolness, as if nothing was happening, and rested in that place until the plane came down to make a safe landing. The passengers clapped their hands with joy at being safe. The strange thing was that when the accident occurred, various people pleaded with me, Lung Po, protect us. But when the danger was over and we disembarked from the plane, only one person came up to thank the monks. Everyone else went over to thank the aircrew. That was the strange part. Ajahn Sumedho's concerns about how Lung Po would react to conditions in the West were soon allayed. After the plane's emergency landing in Rome, the passengers were asked to leave the plane and board the airport buses that would take them to the transit lounge. By the time the monks had disembarked, their bus was packed tightly. Many of the passengers inevitably were women. It was the first test of how Luang Por would cope with a new and alien world in which women did not keep a respectful distance from the monks. As Ajahn Sumedho looked on somewhat tensely, Luang Por simply put his head down and marched onto the bus, ignoring the proximity of the women. Luang Por noted in his journal that he did not find it especially difficult to adapt his body, speech and mind to the new environment. The unusual part was what appeared at my eyes, ears, nose, tongue and body, he wrote. My mind was the same as normal. His initial response to what he saw around him, no doubt tinged by the reports of his Western disciples in Thailand, was of a fundamental lack. He wrote, They have developed their country materially, but because they lack the Dhamma, they have found no contentment. On the first day in London, Luang Por was taken to see the sights, and in the afternoon went for a walk on Hampstead Heath. He was impressed by the lushness of the grass and the unfamiliarity of the trees. In the evening, he recalls, At about eight o'clock, nine people came to listen to the Dhamma, some of whom had previously been to Wat Pong. I taught them the Dhamma that is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful in the end. Afterwards, I answered questions with Venerable Sumedho translating my replies into English. They had prepared to chant the formal request for the five precepts, the first time that had occurred. After I finished my talk, I led them in a meditation session for thirty minutes. I felt that they revealed a natural disposition with close affinities to the Dhamma. The next day, George Sharp drove Luang Por and his party to Birmingham for a Vesaka Puja celebration that included monks from all the Buddhist traditions and at which Ajahn Sumedho had been invited to give a talk. It was a day in which I saw lay people of many nationalities gather together to listen to Dhamma in many different languages. I couldn't understand any of the words they used, but I could understand their meaning by looking at their manner and gestures.
A few quiet days followed. At this time, Lung Po was, as yet, not widely known in Western Buddhist circles. The number of English people interested in Theravadan Buddhism was still small, and of that number, even fewer were aware of the Thai forest tradition. Later that year, Jack Cornfield's book, Living Buddhist Masters, would be published, and the name of Ajahn Chah would become more familiar. But, for the time being, he was still an obscure figure. If his trip were to have taken place thirty years later, he would have been inundated with invitations to take his daily meal in Thai restaurants. But at that time, Busabong on King's Road was the only one in London. The number of Thai residents in Britain was still in the low hundreds rather than the forty thousand of today. The advantage of his anonymity was that Lung Po could rest quietly in the Vihara in a way that would have been difficult for him in Thailand. His next outing was a courtesy call to Wat Puttaputip in Wimbledon, a temple sponsored by the Thai government for the purpose of providing for the spiritual needs of Thai residents in the United Kingdom. The visit was not only a matter of protocol; it was also an opportunity to make useful contacts with members of the Thai Sangha already living in England to ensure their support and to request the blessings of the senior monk for the establishment of the new monastic community. It was given with good grace. The next day, the party travelled to Oxford, where they were to be the guests of the Zors, a wealthy Burmese family who owned a large estate in the countryside, a few miles to the west of the city. It gratified Luang Po that in the morning the monks were offered food in their bowls at the front door of the main house in the traditional manner. It was an auspicious occasion, he wrote, and fulfilled my vow. Of establishing the custom of arms round in England. In the evening, he taught the family meditation. In his diary, as in almost every daily summary, he referred to the benefit created that day. It was clear he had little interest in sightseeing. For him, the value of this long journey was in the benefit created. The visit to Oakenholt gave Lung Po his first glimpse of a ten-day meditation retreat. A group of prefabricated huts, built on the estate during the Second World War, was now functioning as a retreat centre. And a retreat led by John Coleman, a teacher in the Burmese Uba Kin tradition, was underway. Lung Po was impressed by the obvious sincerity of the meditators. After visiting the group and speaking to the teacher, he concluded in his diary that the Buddhist lotus was starting to bloom in the West. A lot for a little. Lung Po's enthusiasm for his diary continued to wax and wane. On a number of days, he recorded little in it but the briefest summary of his daily activities. But on the fifteenth of May, back in London again, he felt inspired. At about seven o'clock this morning, sitting in a quiet, peaceful place, many insights arose in my meditation. Afterwards, I picked up my pen and paper to record them. Emerging from what he said was a profound part of his mind, he wrote, "I realized that as a monk following in the Buddha's footsteps, there were still many matters related to the sasana." That I had not yet fully accomplished, things which I was still neglecting. 
Firstly, concerning place. Secondly, concerning persons. And thirdly, concerning time. I reflected that truly following the teachings of the Buddha meant that having created a sufficient amount of benefit for oneself, one should create benefit for others. It is, in fact, a somewhat puzzling passage. Long Paul's conclusion that the life of a monk is only complete when he shares his understanding with others is quite clearly one that he had held for a long time. Indeed, a few days previously, he had written, One must sacrifice everything for the sasana, primarily for the benefit of sentient beings. So, I'm of the opinion that England deserves to be considered Bhattirupa Desa, a land suitable for the propagation of Dhamma, which is why I have arranged for Western disciples to live here on a regular basis and carry on the work of the sasana. The style of teaching Dhamma here should be of doing a little and getting a lot, doing a lot and getting a little, teaching people to see that the cool exists in the hot and the hot in the cold, the wrong lies in the right, and the right in the wrong. Pain lies in pleasure, and pleasure in pain. Progress lies in regress, and regress in progress. The little lies in the big, and the big in the little. The dirty lies in the clean, and the clean in the dirty. This is called Satcha Dhamma, or else the science of truth, Satcha Saat. All of us who are disciples of the Buddha must practice in order to develop four qualities to their full extent. S, U, N, S, Supatipanno, Ujjupatipanno, Nyayapatipanno, Samichipatipanno. And then teach the Dhamma in a way true to the Buddha's intentions. We must study the science of truth and then realize truth itself. Realization means coming to the end of the last sentence. This is what is called the one Dhamma. No more sentences of the teachings remain. It is reaching the end of the holy life, in which, in the midst of things, there is no thing. If disciples fully comprehend the Buddha's wishes in this way, then they may travel around alone, both internally and externally. The monks are the ones who know what is what. When they know that clearly, then the knowledge of enough emerges into their minds. When enough has emerged, then simultaneously there arise all kinds of righteousness. The Dhamma that manifests in the mind is prominent day and night. Prior assumptions about what is what and what things mean have come to an end. This Dhamma will not appear with any clarity, merely through the words of another. It will only manifest through practice. It is Pachatang. You can't teach it to anyone. You can't tell anyone about it. You can't study it. As the Buddha said, Akhataro Tathagato, the Tathagata is merely the one who shows the way. The meaning of that phrase becomes supremely clear, free of all doubts. This is the Buddha's goal. Strange but fascinating. While he was in England, 
Lung Po met a number of monks from other Buddhist traditions. One of them was an English Zen monk trained in Japan called Senko. Lung Po interviewed him about the teachings and the way of life of Japanese monks, a summary of which he later entered in his diary. On asking how many precepts the monks in Japan keep, he had been told that constant mindfulness is their sila, which Lung Po found a strange but quite fascinating idea. He was told that there were two kinds of monk, one kind celibate, these are the good kind, the ones who seek for purity, and the ones who could marry and whose son carries on the family temple after his death. This, Lung Po noted, entailed some divergence from his own tradition. Learning that the syllable go refers to emptiness, that evening he made it the subject of his evening talk. Go means emptiness, as in the Buddha's term, temple of emptiness, sunyata vihara. We should enter into this temple. Vihara means the place where the mind dwells in the perception of emptiness. The Buddha taught that this body, in fact, all things are empty, meaning that there is no being, there is no person. Through seeing its emptiness clearly, seeing it as merely earth, water, fire and air, then Venerable Sumedho here won't die. Why not? Because actually there's no Sumedho. You see, Sumedho's death is a convention. There's no real Sumedho. There's no Sumedho to die. He's not born and he does not die. There is just a configuration of Dhammas, comprised of causes and conditions, which arise and then pass away. The Buddha said that the Lord of Death, in other words, death itself, can't keep up with the one who dwells in the temple of emptiness. He can't find him. There's no pleasure and no pain, no self, no separation of self and other. It's empty. There is the seeing of emptiness in empty phenomena. The word empty means that there's nothing at that place. It's empty with regards to the mind. There's no conceit or view whatsoever, attaching to ideas of self, of us and them. There are simply the four elements of earth, water, fire and air, arising and passing away in their natural way. That's why the Buddha said that the Lord of Death can't catch up, can't find one dwelling in emptiness, and through that comes liberation. It's called liberation from birth, liberation from old age, liberation from death. In fact, the elements keep on being born and dying as before, but it's simply earth, water, fire and air coming together. There is no being, no person. The mind is empty of the concept of being, empty of the concept of person. It's precisely that which is the empty place. The mind is empty in a place that is not empty. It sees the emptiness in something that is not empty. Not allowing there to be a perception of a human being where one usually arises. Not allowing there to be a creature where one is usually perceived. Not allowing the perception of death where it would usually be perceived. That's why the Buddha called it the temple of emptiness. If you enter it, you feel at peace.
a peace free from pleasure, a peace free from pain, a peace free from birth, old age, sickness and death. That is the supreme emptiness. It's the end. The same fruit. The following day, Lung Po recorded a historic occasion. Today was the first day that we went walking for arms in London. Venerable Bodhinyana Tera led the way, followed by Venerable Sumedho, American, Venerable Kemadammo, English, and Novice Gina Dutto, French. On this, our first arms round, I received some rice, two apples, two bananas, two carrots, two sweets, and a cucumber. I was happy to get this food today because of the way in which it was acquired and because I understand alms food to be father's food, food which ultimately comes to us from the Buddha. The people of this city have never seen monks on alms round before because most monks who live here have been too ashamed to practice it. I am of the exact opposite view. I only find actions that are evil or incorrect to be shameful, which is in conformity with the Buddha's meaning of the term. That's my opinion anyway. True or false, I ask the indulgence of all the sages. On this same day, Kemadamo's parents came to offer food as well and asked to listen to a talk and have a special period of meditation which they found satisfying. On arms round, Newspaper reporters followed in our tracks and took photographs at regular intervals because arms round is an unusual thing here. The people of London, children and adults, stood in lines watching us go by. Later in the month, Lung Po returned to Oxfordshire to teach a retreat at the meditation centre established on the grounds of the Saws Mansion. There were a hundred people on the retreat and their dedication impressed Lung Po. He is, however, noticeably reticent about the retreat in his diary, presumably because he could find little time for writing. He summarises only that there were reasonably satisfying results from the work. Back in London, Lung Po gave a number of evening talks, one of which he began with a now familiar reminder that doubts and uncertainties regarding the Dhamma could not be removed by study alone. The Dhamma lies beyond language. Study, being reliant on language, could only provide a superficial understanding of it. Only through practice could the wisdom necessary to penetrate the Dhamma be cultivated. He had been asked a number of times about the difference between Samatha and Vipassana. He explained that on a theoretical level they could be distinguished, but from the point of view of Dhamma practice, they were related qualities of the mind that emerged as the mind matured. An unripe fruit is a fruit. As it ripens, it's still the same fruit. And when it's fully ripened, it remains that same fruit. Essentially, he explained, you didn't practice samatha or vipassana, you practiced dhamma. By doing so, the truth of things could be known directly independent of names. It was a natural process. When you keep your precepts, your mind is clean. When it's clean, it's at ease. When it's at ease, it's at peace. 
and when it's at peace, wisdom arises. He spoke about the challenge in finding the middle way, or as he liked to call it, just rightness, podi, or correctness. How was it possible to know when you had achieved that optimal, just right or correct approach, most effective for realizing the goal, when you didn't know what that goal was? He said that it was necessary to have the incorrect to measure it against. The meditator proceeded by being careful not to attach to pleasure and pain. Having recognized and let go of the incorrect, correctness would arise naturally. It's like a person with a pair of scales. If it's weighed down at this side, the buyer doesn't like it. If it's weighed down at that side, then the seller doesn't like it. Only when the scales are evenly balanced and horizontal is everyone satisfied. When you're practicing sitting meditation, you know that if you're not peaceful, if it's not just right, the mind must be attached to a mental state of one kind or another. Constant mindfulness was needed to observe the state of mind. The mistake was in grasping on to what the mind found pleasant and rejecting what was perceived to be unpleasant. Right view could not arise and the mind would fabricate the world it lived in as one of likes to be pursued and dislikes to be avoided. This is samudaya, the cause of suffering, because we can't live experiencing only mental pleasure or only mental pain. For the duration of our lives, the two are mixed together, and because that's so, it's essential that we understand the nature of mental pleasure and pain as they really are. If we don't understand their true nature, then we will just continue holding on to wrong views. The Buddha recognized that these two mental states are our constant enemies. As long as we don't fully understand them, we will never be liberated from suffering. For this reason, we must develop the Buddha's right practice, Sammapatipata. We need sila, taking care of our actions and speech, so that they are in good order without creating unpleasant consequences for self or others. Samadhi, firm stability of attention, and Panya, a thorough understanding of the mass of conditioned phenomena. Lumpur emphasized that being mindful did not refer simply to dwelling in the present moment. The Buddhist practice of sati was distinguished by its moral and ethical dimension. Some meditation groups hold the view that it's not necessary to practice sila or samadhi, that mindfulness in all postures is enough. That's good in a way, but it's not the Buddha's way. A cat has mindfulness, goats and sheep have mindfulness, but it's wrong mindfulness, not sammasati, right mindfulness. On the Buddhist path, you can't take that as a working principle. Buddhism teaches that being mindful and aware means being aware of right and wrong. Having become aware of the right and the wrong, then practice to abandon whatever is wrong and cultivate whatever is good. A suitable land. 
Lumpur considered England a suitable centre for the dissemination of the Buddhist teachings in the West. For him, as for most people of his age and background, the image of Britain projected around the world in its colonial heyday was yet to fade. England seemed to be a country at the very heart of the Western world. At the same time, it was also conveniently small and easy to get around. English society seemed peaceful and stable, with no deep religious prejudices against Buddhism. Moreover, it possessed a rich history of Buddhist scholarship, most notably at the Pali Text Society. Above all, there was a burgeoning interest in the practice of Buddhist meditation. As the Buddhists Lumpur met were almost all members of the educated middle class, the opinion he gained of Westerners' intellect and acuity was high. Comparing the situation with Thailand, where it seems like we're running out of steam, he said, From what I've seen, the people in this country are intelligent. If you give them profound observations, they understand them easily. I've explained the Dhamma to them, and they've taken away what I've said and reflected on it. I believe that the basic character of the Westerners will enable them to make Buddhism flourish here. He saw great potential in the thoughtful, questioning attitude of the people he spoke to. I've looked at the general deportment of the people here, and as yet, it's not so good. But with regard to the profound teachings, I think they'll take to it easily. In this country, it's as if the species of fruit are good, the soil's good, but there are no farmers. There's nobody to teach people here, as there is in Thailand. In my opinion, when coming over to the West, it's not necessary to say much. I'll give you a comparison. It's like you've got some fruit you want them to eat. All you have to say is that it's delicious. It might be sweet, sour, salty. You don't have to go into all that. You just say it's delicious and let them take it away and try it. Let them find out for themselves exactly what the taste is like. That's how you have to teach Westerners. Intelligent people don't need a great deal of teaching. With all kinds of knowledge, you have to see for yourself. You can't see something clearly just through having it explained to you. To see the truth, you must proceed until you see it for yourself. Just give them the fruit. You don't have to tell them about the flavour. They'll find out for themselves. Lumpur seemed at ease with his inability to express himself directly to the people who came to see him. He showed no signs of impatience or frustration at the hiatuses resulting from the need for translation of his every word. But it was hard work for Ajahn Sumedho. The task of translating the Dhamma discourses was a particular challenge. When giving talks, Lumpur made no attempt to modify his mode of delivery. Rather than speaking in short bursts to prevent overtaxing the memory of the translator and the attention of his audience, Lumpur spoke in his usual manner. On occasions, a full hour would pass before he instructed Ajahn Sumedho to translate. It was not the most effective way for Lumpur, the great communicator, to get through to his audience. 
In Thailand, he sometimes used Dhamma talks as a means of training his audience in patience rather than for the transmission of information and the rousing of faith. But in England, it was hard to say to what extent that kind of intention came to play a part. It may well have been that he simply found it too difficult to transform his unpremeditated flowing style of discourse into a series of discrete chunks. Whatever the case, many members of his audience found that his presence, his mannerisms, the sound of his voice more than compensated for difficulties in understanding his words. On one evening, with an argument not guaranteed to inspire his translator to further efforts, Lungpo spoke of the inferiority of language compared to direct experience. Everybody knew what water felt like, but people of different nationalities had different words for the experience. When we human beings are experiencing the same thing, then we don't have to say so much. Just by looking at each other, we already understand each other. That's the feeling I had as I walked in here. Planting the Lotus Lung Po was satisfied with what he saw in England. Certainly, living conditions for the Sangha were far removed from those in the forest monasteries of Isan, but he had never expected it to be otherwise. Developing a forest-dwelling mendicant order was obviously going to be a long-term project. What Lung Po was looking for was a solid core of lay support and potential for future development. These he found. The deciding factor in his agreement to the new venture was his confidence in Ajahn Sumedho's ability to carry the burden. With the assistance of Venerable Kemadamo and Samanera Gina Datto, soon to be augmented by two more North American monks trained in Wat Banana Chan, Venerables Anando and Viradamo, there would, from the start, be a Sangha in residence. As four monks provided the minimum quorum needed for rituals such as the Patimoka recitation, this was an important constituent of the solid foundation he was seeking to establish. Lung Po was aware of the frequent failures of temples focused upon a single charismatic figure rather than a community of monks. He was emphatic that the success of the whole venture depended on maintaining the observances that characterized the tradition in Thailand in particular the scrupulous adherence to the Vinaya and the upholding of practices such as a daily arms round. There were many ideas being bandied about in the lay community regarding which aspects of the tradition might have to be discarded. Lung Po's decision was to try to transplant the whole thing and then, through trial and error, see where adaptations might have to be made. During a discussion about the practice of the Vinaya in England, Ajahn Sumedho mentioned to Luang Po that the governing council of one of the Asian Theravada Sanghas had recently passed a resolution permitting monks living abroad to waive the rule forbidding the use of money. Their argument had been that keeping the rule in non-Buddhist countries was impractical. Luang Po strongly disagreed. The rules governing monks' relationship to money were key to the preservation of the Vinaya as a whole. The Buddha had stipulated procedures involving lay stewards that were fit for purpose and should be respected. An unofficial declaration that a particular rule was no longer practical set a dangerous precedent. In fact, the difficulty in keeping some of the rules was not a bad thing at all. It prevented monks from becoming careless about the Vinaya. 
we have to maintain the veneer in perpetuity. In the future, if monks accept money, they'll start buying and selling and that will be the end of it. There'll be no pure monks in Thailand or England or on the whole face of the earth, all down the drain. It was clear that Lung Po felt strongly that relaxing the practice of any of the core training rules would lead to a slippery slope that must be resolutely avoided. But while the vineyard and observances were to be upheld without picking and choosing according to convenience, Lung Po allowed that in certain areas there was room for flexibility. He was not insisting that everything had to be done in exactly the same way as it was in Thailand. Whenever he found himself in unfamiliar situations, he said, the wise monk should examine prevailing conditions and consider to what degree he might adapt to local customs without undermining his vinaya practice. It's intelligent to learn how to make compromises when faced with things that are not in direct conflict with the vinaya, are not harmful in themselves, but are simply different from our own agreed ways of doing things. Minor changes he sanctioned were prompted by the much colder climate. They included the wearing of shoes on arms round and the covering of the right shoulder within monastic boundaries. This latter allowance led to the design of a long-sleeved shirt-cum-jacket under which sweaters could be worn in the winter. All in your head Although Lung Po repeatedly impressed his disciples and English hosts with the apparently effortless ease with which he adapted to conditions which were new and strange to him, the acceptance of his environment that he demonstrated was not indiscriminate. On certain occasions, when he might have been expected to conform with conditions, he showed no inclination to do so at all. One day, for example, it was necessary for him to travel on the underground during rush hour. The atmosphere was hurried and frantic. The monks and lay people accompanying Lung Po felt themselves swept along by the energy of the place. They were surprised and a little irritated to see that rather than increasing his pace to keep up with them, Lung Po had seemed to quite deliberately slow down. One of the monks got the point. They had plenty of time to get to their destination. Why start rushing just because everyone else was? In what areas was adaptation appropriate and to what extent? What were the causes of insufficient adaptation or over-adaptation? What was the wise relationship to customs and conventions? All these questions were of much interest to Lung Po. Observing the customs of the English allowed him to look at Thai customs with a fresh perspective. His reflections on this matter appeared in many talks that he gave on his return to Thailand. During the course of one such talk, he said, If we invest things with our views and beliefs, then they immediately gain value. They can become sacred or holy objects. But without our projections, nothing has any intrinsic worth. We Thais take the head to be the most exalted part of the body. We don't let anybody touch our heads in jest. It makes us so angry that in the past it has even led people to kill each other. It's because of a view that we won't let people touch our heads, a deeply entrenched attachment. When I was abroad, I saw the Westerners touching each other's heads quite freely. One of the Western monks took me to visit his parents. 
as soon as we arrived, he put out his hand and touched his father's head affectionately. He stroked his father's head and laughed, and his father was really happy about it. To him, it meant that his son loved him. That's how it is over there. Every culture had its conventions. Problems arose when people gave absolute and fixed values to them. Understanding conventions as conventions and making use of them as appropriate was the wise path. Lumpur said that with the abandonment of wrong views and attachment to conventions, all things lost their former value. This did not mean a moral nihilism, simply that when the blind identification with conditioned phenomena fell away, suffering could find no way into the mind. Urban Dhamma One morning on alms round in London, the monks became aware of a group of teenagers veering towards them. They carried with them a threat of casual violence. Laughing and joking, they shouted insults at the monks and made threatening gestures. To roars of approval from their friends, one or two of them ran up and aimed playful kicks at the line of monks, missing them by inches. They taunted the monks, probing for a response. Ajahn Sumedho began to be concerned that things were turning ugly and prepared to shield his teacher. Lumpur, completely unfazed by it all, continued walking at an unhurried pace with eyes downcast. Soon the lads became bored with the game and ran off. On safely reaching the entrance to the temple, Ajahn Sumedho went forward to receive Lumpur's bowl. Lumpur smiled and said, It gives good teachings, England, good teachings. Further still, Lumpur had a certain basic knowledge of Christianity. At Wat Ba Pong, his Western disciples would occasionally speak about their experiences of it with him, and he sometimes enjoyed discussions with the fathers Pasek and Pisek, local French priests who were fluent in Thai. But it's unlikely that Lumpur possessed more than a fundamental idea of Christian teachings or realized that the Protestant denominations he encountered in England were any different from the Catholicism he had met in Thailand. He certainly did not seem to be aware of how blunt his words might sound to a Christian ear. When the vicar of an old church he was visiting asked him, There's no prayer in your practice. Do you believe it can still take you to God? Lumpur replied, Beyond that. On another occasion, Lumpur referred to a belief in gods with a saving power as a hindrance to the realization of the human potential to save oneself. To Lumpur, the preciousness of a human birth lies in the unique opportunity it provided to abandon the defilements powering the whole wheel of birth and death. He was critical of teachings that he saw as undermining a person's determination to take advantage of that opportunity. Those who were unaware that there were defilements in their heart that could be removed with the right training, tended to allow life to take its course, never achieving a true refuge. Some take refuge in a god up in heaven and just wait around for him to come and help them. In fact, we can help ourselves. It's just that we don't know how to. We wait for someone else to help us and die with nothing to show for our lives. Buddhists should take responsibility for their lives by following the path towards being one's own refuge. 
knowing our own responsibility, we should keep abandoning defilements, abstaining from evil, doing only good, and then abandoning identification with the good. There was no need to look for an external support. People who loved themselves, in other words, those who truly wished themselves well, should learn how to be their own refuge. Those who had practiced well and gained a true inner refuge were able to create for themselves a world of experience that was full of virtue and peace. By this token, they could be said to be creator gods themselves. What a what is? Many of the people who came to Hampstead Vihara had little idea of the role that a forest monastery plays in its local community. They would usually assume that monks lived in complete isolation, behind high walls. Lumpur explained the truth of the matter to a university lecturer. The forest monastery is deeply involved in the villagers' lives. It's the place where people are taught how to abandon wrong views and how to have a correct understanding of their human birth, how to conduct themselves, how to live life. On observance day, the villagers gather in the monastery, offer the sangha their daily meal and take the eight precepts. They practice meditation to purify their minds. The monks teach and advise them and give them dhamma talks to help them understand the principles of Buddhism. There are people who, like you in Europe, have never heard the Buddha's teachings before. Those people are given a better understanding of the teachings. People who don't know about merit and demerit, right and wrong, are taught about them in the monastery. People from every level of society learn how to be intelligent about their lives, how to refrain from committing base acts of body, speech and mind, and how to establish themselves in right conduct of body, speech and mind. They learn how to reduce conceit and attachment to views, and how to gradually lessen the greed, hatred and delusion in their hearts, until they become true Buddhists, people who know how to share with others, and how to live with loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. Counter-Questions the limits of intellectual understanding was a theme Lung Po often returned to. One evening, when a lay meditator asked him to describe the monk's life, he said it would be as difficult as a fish trying to explain its life to a bird. It would not be possible for the bird to imagine what it would be like to live in the water, unless, he added, the bird was reborn as a fish. When someone asked what happens after death, Lung Po extinguished the candle by the side of him and asked her in return, where does a candle flame go after it's extinguished? The questioner looked confused. After a few moments he said, are you satisfied with my answer? No, I wasn't satisfied with your question either. Refugee Dhamma At the end of June, Lung Po went to France to visit a Laotian disciple, Ajahn Ban Kao. While he was there, groups of refugees from Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam came to pay their respects, and he heard harrowing tales of the suffering they had endured in their homelands. During one exhortation he said, 
give up thinking about it. Things that have passed have passed, like the days that have gone by. Don't keep grasping onto them, like thorns to pierce you. Look at it as if you've been reborn. Where is your home? Now it's right here. You have friends and family here. The place that you've left wasn't really your home. If it was, then you could still live there. In fact, we have no real home in this world. Wherever we live, we simply create a convention that it's our home. But it's not really. Before long, we have to move on. So while you're here, put effort into being here. Make your life here. Make your peace with being here. That peace came through the acceptance of change. Wherever you are, it's just like that. There's no essence or core to it, no lasting stability. The world is continually changing. If you go back and live over there, it will change. If you stay here, it will change. We exist through change. If there was no change, we couldn't go on living. Your outbreath changes into an inbreath, which changes into an outbreath. Inhalations and exhalations alternate with each other in that way, and without it, we'd be dead. You can't just keep on breathing in all the time, or breathing out. We exist through change. Food is the same. You put it in one end of your body, and it comes out the other. Then you eat some more. There's continual change. Lumpur asked his audience the point of brooding on thoughts of hurt and sorrow about the unchangeable nature of change. Wherever they found themselves, they should do what needed to be done in that place. Wherever they went, they were human beings. They were Buddhists. They should reflect on the truth of their situation in order to make the best of it. Wealth and possessions come and go when conditions are ripe for them to do so. Human beings are born and die and are born again. Suffering only arises when we don't reflect on the changing nature of things. So may all of you face up to the truth of change, taught to us by the Lord Buddha. Be resilient. Wherever you find yourselves, then make that a place where you create goodness and virtue. Even if you come to the end of your life, don't abandon the goodness and virtue that comes from your Dhamma practice. Without Dhamma, there is nothing truly good. Atta hi atta no nato, itself that is the refuge for the self. Who else could be a refuge to you? That's the truth. When conditions are ripe for things to happen, they happen. Don't spend so much time brooding over it all and causing yourself needless trouble. Put your efforts into making an honest living. Do good deeds. Live harmoniously. Help each other out. Be kind to each other. Wherever we live, nobody stays around for very long. Soon, we'll all go our separate ways. Frog to Pond after three months away from Thailand, Lung Po summarized his trip on the last page of his journal with the wordplay that had come to characterize it. As well as the wordplay, he makes references to particular aspects of Buddhist understanding or Thai culture. The first is his use of the word nirutti, 
which is a special type of skill in the use of language. Later, he refers to the four kinds of lotus. The Buddha compared four levels of spiritual maturity and readiness to receive the teachings with lotuses. The first, hidden in the mud. The second, rising through the water. The third, emerging through the water. And the fourth, completely emerged. And in the final section, referring to himself as Ajahn Frog, he makes a joking reference to the fact that in the northeast of Thailand, people eat frogs, and so come running to catch them as soon as they hear them croak. 15th of July, 1977 I travel to the inner outer land and the outer inner land, the inner inner land and the outer outer land, four lands altogether. The languages that I needed to use in these lands were Nirutti, and so it produced satisfactory benefit. There's no teacher for these languages. They have to be learnt individually. These languages only manifest when prompted by particular events. Thus, the Buddha was well versed in all languages, and I truly saw European people as the four kinds of lotus. I'm a monk who has lived in the forest for a long time. I thought that going abroad would be exciting, but it wasn't, because I was governed by the Buddha in every posture. Not only that, but the journey also gave rise to wisdom. Just as the lotus allows no water to submerge it, my reflections constantly ran directly counter to my surroundings. I visited various universities, and I had the thought that all the sciences of humanity are blunt. They are unable to cut off suffering, they merely generate it. I felt that if these sciences do not rely on Buddha science, they will not survive. On the plane, I had many kinds of unusual feelings, and my mind raised up the Buddha saying, Look on this world as grand as a king's chariot. Fools are enamoured of it, but the wise remain unbound. This saying has become even clearer, as did the phrase about not being proud when, in a group whose ways and customs are unfamiliar to you, that has become absolutely clear. Lung Po had travelled in many different vehicles over the past months. He noted that the plane he was now sitting in was flying at 30,000 feet, its maximum height above ground level. But impressive as such vehicles were, he mused, they were nothing compared to the vehicle of Dhamma. In fact, they were not so amazing at all. The vehicles that convey people to their destinations are coarse, because they merely take people who are suffering in one place off to suffer somewhere else. They just go around in endless circles. My feeling about this trip abroad is that it's been a humorous affair. For many years now, I felt like I was a lord of monkeys, being poked and teased by spectators. What would it be like, I thought, to go abroad and try being an Ajahn frog for a while? I knew I'd have to be an Ajahn frog for sure, because I didn't know their language, and that's how it turned out. Frogs don't know human language, but the moment they start croaking, 
people come running. For me, it was like a mute teaching the insane, and that's not so bad. You don't have to study or pass exams to receive the degree offered by the Buddha. And so, a mute monk established a branch monastery in London for insane people to study in. It's comic. <laughs>